Hello everyone, I'm Phil Dickens and this is From the Hill of Megiddo, the podcast serialisation of my book of the same name. In the last episode, Miles Darheen returned from the dead and discovered a dangerous hunger that he struggled to keep a lid on. Let's see what happens in the next three chapters. Chapter 12. The outline of the village church's spire stood out starkly in the light of the crescent moon, it and the other buildings black against the deep blue of the starlit sky. Lucius stood out in the open field a moment, with the cool breeze on his face, a stark contrast to the choking heat he had been in only moments earlier. It was a sensation that he had come to enjoy, perhaps proof that he was softening up. Soft or not, though, he still had work to do. He made his way across the field and into the village proper. A small number of timber frame buildings which had stood since the mid-1500s surrounded a central square with a well. In the time that the village had stood, technology had advanced greatly, but you wouldn't know it if you lived here. Like the Amish in America, the locals shunned much of the modern world from cars to indoor plumbing. Unlike the Amish, however, the tribalists were suspected of a number of particularly dark practices that meant they were under near constant surveillance by German authorities, which was what had attracted Lucius. The elders were in the church, more specifically in the basement, which was lit only by two small candles that cast long shadows. There were five of them, wearing leather masks and standing in a silent circle. The children could see only their eyes, their fierce stare and the expectation that came with it. They knew what they had to do, but were afraid and huddled close together, desperately trying to conceal their nakedness with too few hands. It was when one of the elders brandished a cane that Lucius appeared at the foot of the stairs. That's quite enough, he said in German. He tossed a blanket to the children, who stared wide-eyed as it landed by their feet. Go, to your homes and beds, now. How dare one of the elders move to bar the children's hasty escape? But before he could, he was propelled back into the wall by an unseen force. Oh, shush now. The smell of fear had been lingering in the air as he arrived, but now it was far thicker, and it belonged to the adults rather than the children. Are you really going to act outraged at my behaviour, given your own? He walked over to the elder, laying sprawled on the floor. The force that had flung him now raised him up until he was dangling in the air, his feet not quite touching the floor. None of the others dared move. I... I never... I'm sorry. Truly sorry. I repent my sins. Tears streamed down the elder's face, yawing down his legs. Simpering. Pathetic. Please don't kill me. Lucius reached out and wiped a tear from the man's face, caressing his cheek almost tenderly. I have no such plans. However, what I do want from you may hurt somewhat. He pressed his forefinger up under the elder's chin and from there traced a firm line around the edges of his face, around the edges of the jawline, behind the ears, up to the hairline, and back down again. This elicited loud, piercing howls from the elder, and slow trails of blood dripped down the edges of his face in the wake of Lucius's finger. Behind him, one of the other elders found the courage to move and tried to sneak towards the stairs as quietly as possible. He and the others were all dragged off the ground to hang just above it, unable to do other than squirm. You'll all get your turn. Lucius finished tracing his finger and delicately peeled the face from the elder like a mask. As will the rest of your wretched sect, rest assured. Not just them either. It would be a considerable job of work to gather together the multitude and prepare them to wear their robes. But he was nothing if not patient. And even if he wasn't, he could honestly say that he enjoyed his work. 
He allowed himself to smile as he moved on to the next elder. At a little past six in the morning, Miles was sat on the couch in yesterday's clothes with his hair sticking out at wild angles. His mouth was dry and his eyelids were heavy, though there was no risk of him drifting off to sleep. Sarah was sat on the floor a little ahead of him and would periodically clap her hands together or shout out something in response to the animated horse on the television. Miles had been watching the show with her for at least 40 minutes, though he couldn't say with any certainty what was actually happening in it. Next to the little girl, a bowl of Cocoa Pops sat half-finished and forgotten. Shortly, the show with the cartoon horse ended and something with giant talking dolls came on. Sarah got up off the floor and came over to the couch, where she moved Miles' arm out of the way and snuggled into his side. Comfy there? He asked, to which the reply was vigorous nodding and a finger to her lips to indicate he should stop talking while the TV was on. It was good advice. He put his arm around her and leaned back, watching the giant dolls move frantically around the house and jabber incomprehensibly. Sarah giggled occasionally throughout. He laughed with her, though if pressed couldn't have said what the joke was meant to be. Not that it mattered. She was happy, and he found himself grinning. What are you two giggling about? Lydia asked as she came into the room. She was wearing nothing more than an oversized t-shirt, her hair a wild ginger frizz framing a pale, freckled face with no makeup. Miles's grin stretched even wider when he saw her, until his cheeks started to hurt. What? He shook his head. My, come on. Yeah, come on, my, Sarah said, nudging him in the side. He laughed, heat rising in his cheeks. I just think you look really... Pretty was too childish, but beautiful was too corny. Really fit right now? He finished. Fit? Lydia put her hands on her hips. He shrugged. You know what I mean. You're such a romantic. She kissed him on the forehead, then sat down on the other side of Sarah and put her arms around the pair of them. She caressed his neck with a finger, making his skin tingle. He looked over at her and she winked at him. More time passed as they sat there together. Miles couldn't say how much time, though at some point the show with the giant dolls finished and he was staring at another cartoon. Watching would have been the wrong word for it. It didn't matter though, as he was not inclined to move. If he could have stayed like this all day, he would have been content. There was a supermarket just around the corner from the pub they were headed to. As Jess and Kit wandered past it, they caught the tail end of a conversation between a man and a woman loading their shopping into their car. I just don't understand why you thought we needed so much milk. We go through about a pint a week. I don't know, but you saw the news about the wolves, and we don't know for sure there aren't any more of them out there. I'm pretty sure they're not going around nicking people's milk, love. They exchanged a glance, suppressing their giggles until they were sure they were out of earshot. Beyond the couple rowing over dairy, the streets were empty. Very few cars went past, and Jess and Kit were the only pedestrians. They walked into the pub holding hands. Just after the door, they passed a table where an old man sat nursing a pint of bitter. He made a comment about what good-looking girl Kit had and winked at Jess. The woman behind the bar had just finished pouring a pint for another elderly man when they reached it. He paid her, waving away the change, and whistled when he saw Jess. It was difficult to comprehend most of what he said, but there was something about a double act with the woman who had served him. She felt Kit's hand grip hers tighter. Just remember, assaulting the aged is a crime, he whispered. Does it have to be? She exchanged a sympathetic look with the woman at the bar before ordering a breakfast and a large coffee each for her and Kit. After paying, she found the table farthest away from any of the old men dotted around who made up the pub's only custom at this hour of the morning and pulled Kit over to it. I didn't get any sleep at all last night, he said. I feel far too on edge. Yeah, 
same. How long have we been up now? About 36 hours? I guess so. Maybe after this we should get some sleep. She stared at him and raised an eyebrow. Really? What? Kit, I love you dearly, but you are hopelessly naive when you want to be. She laughed. You're coming back to my place, and I'm going to shag you till you pass out. His cheeks flushed with colour. She leaned forward, grabbed his face, and kissed him. After a moment's pause, she said, Wow, that was actually our first kiss, wasn't it? Guess all that death and mayhem doesn't really prevent the opportunity to slip someone the tongue. Plus, you are quite scary. She punched him in the arm, then laughed. It's good, you know. This... Just being able to have a little bit of normalcy in amongst all the batshit insanity. I think you should officially go out with me, in case we die or something. In case we die or something? She shrugged. Hannah, I suppose you're okay to look at and talk to and stuff. They kissed again, and Jess felt all the tension in her shoulders melt away, if only for a moment. I don't like it. It was approaching full dark, and Hazel and Joel were walking down a mostly empty street close to the city centre. She had a hold all slung over her shoulder heavier than it looked for the weapons that it contained. Two sheathed swords that would be hard to explain if they were stopped and searched for any reason, but would be even harder to justify if they wore them openly. Everyone's just accepted them far too easily. She'd been able to feel the wrongness of it as soon as she had laid eyes upon Miles. He didn't look any different, at least while he was wearing a human face, but her skin prickled just to look at him. The hairs on the back of the neck and on her arms stood up. If there was a difference between Miles and the group Hare and Joel had killed in that derelict house they had rescued Katie from, it was nothing his senses could detect. You don't agree? Joel had an uneasy look on his face. It told her that he didn't agree, but that he didn't want to say it out loud. He always tiptoed around it when he had a different opinion to her, as if he was afraid of upsetting her. She rolled her eyes. Joel? He shrugged. I don't think it was easily, but after everything that was said in the room, including what Booth and Anil said, I'm fairly happy to take him at face value. A face value is an undead creature that subsists on blood. You know what I mean. I know that you can sense his vampireness, or whatever you want to call it, but what he is doesn't dictate who he is, at least not in this case. Hazel frowned and shook her head. I still don't like it. No, I know, but... He froze. The hairs on the back of Hazel's neck stood on end, and a chill slid down her back. She scanned their surroundings, wary. What was... There was a loud clap from behind them, followed by a heavy rush of wind. They spun about and found themselves facing an enormous crowd of people in white robes, their faces covered by the shadow of their hoods. Maybe several hundred. Probably not human. Hazel went cold. Sentinel! The group spoke in chorus, their voices deep and monotonous. In your blood we are cleansed. They all drew daggers from inside their robes. Chapter 13 The door clicked shut behind the detective, and Danny was finally left alone with his own thoughts. His body ached, and there were heavy bags under his eyes. He stared down at the table in front of him. Shit, he said. He had been sloppy. There was no excuse for it, even if the battle had been a brutal one and had taken it out of him. He should have slung the body under the tarpaulin on the back of his truck and disposed of it when he had more time to do so. Instead, he could only presume that an early riser had seen him out in Union Cemetery from their house and called the cops. They'd arrived just as he was leaving a charred pile of bones behind, and one high-speed chase down Edison Highway later, he had a boot on his back and was chewing gravel. He went to rub his eye with his right hand, forgetting for a second that his wrist was cupped to the table. Fuck, he said, as he felt the metal bite into his flesh. 
He used his left hand instead, glaring at the security camera on the ceiling while he did. Glass shattered. Not in the interrogation room, but somewhere inside the station. That sound was followed by a shout, a gunshot, then silence. Danny kicked his chair away and knelt to the table leg he was handcuffed to. A wooden door frame splintered. There were screams, shouts and more gunshots. He put one hand on the edge of the table and a foot against the leg he was cuffed to, pushing with both. He pulled with his cuffed arm, yanking as hard as he could. There was a crack as the table leg broke and the handcuffs came loose, then a bang as the door burst inwards. He turned and grabbed the chair he had been sitting on. It clocked the first assailant across the head, but as they fell, the second slid a dagger between his ribs. Danny coughed up blood as he fell to his knees. He grunted with each additional blow, the pain giving way to numbness as his blood fled his body. The last thing he noticed as he choked on his own blood was that his attackers all wore white robes. Jenny pulled up in the small parking lot outside Jim and Nina's pizzeria. Her stomach growled when she turned the radio off, and in the seat next to her, Hannah giggled. Jenny gave her daughter a smile. That's a sure sign we need to eat, she said. Walking into the restaurant, Jenny felt a tingle on her skin and stopped. She quickly cased her surroundings, but saw nothing. She willed her heart to slow down. You're giving that world up, she told herself. Don't let it hold on to you. Mum, you okay? Hannah asked. Jenny smiled and nodded. I'm fine, sweetie. Just an empty stomach. What say we go fill it up? She pushed open the door and was met by a waiter called Greg, who directed them to a table by the window. He made some idle chit-chat, departing once they both asked for Pepsi to drink. Moments later, another customer was seated at the table near them, and Jenny rolled her eyes when she spotted a copy of Weird Pennsylvania in his hand. Hey, she called over. I'm going to go out on a lemon guess you're an out-of-towner. Hannah looked over, spotted the guidebook, and also rolled her eyes. The guy smiled. Yeah, hi. Jenny pulled her jacket close across her chest with one hand, and his eyes raised to meet hers. Name's John. I'm on a bit of a road trip, but I'm here for... The Seven Gates of Hell, she finished for him. I figured. Almost everyone who comes into town is. You know it's just a myth, right? It's just a plot of land owned by some rich guy. The most she'll get going up there is a court summons for trespass. John laughed. That's what everyone round here says. He put the book down on the table. But I've been doing my own research. Whatever you say, pal. Good luck with that. Thankfully, the Seven Gates of Hell really were a myth. The last thing she needed was to be dragged back to that world for the sake of an adventure-seeking tourist. The front door opened. A large group in white hooded robes filed into the restaurant, drawing stares from John and the few other customers in the restaurant. Immediately, Jenny felt the wrongness, the otherness of them. She stood, grabbing Hannah, and backed away from them whilst putting her daughter behind her. One of the robes drew a knife across Greg's throat. People screamed and moved to flee. Greg fell to his knees, spitting up blood. An elderly man was stabbed in the back as he tried to flee to the restrooms. Three children, all about six, ran in Jenny and Hannah's direction. The woman who had been looking after them, presumably the mother of at least one, didn't make it. John drew a handgun from his pocket, but it was swatted away, throwing a punch in and a knife in his armpit. Another across his throat finished the job. Jenny pushed Hannah and the kids towards the back of the restaurant. Turning their attention to her, the robe spoke in unison. Sentinel. She squatted and gripped the leg of the nearest table. In your blood, she grunted as she pushed. The table lifted off the ground enough to clock the three robes at the front in the chest, 
They fall on its landing, sending the centre of the group tumbling to the floor with them. Go! Jenny leapt over a booth and fell into step behind Hannah, who was guiding the kids towards the kitchen. She shoved in front of them in time to take down a rogue who was getting too close with a kick to the head, then let them take over again once inside the kitchen. The kitchen staff had the same idea as her, and the back door was already wide open. Get out! Jenny told Hannah. Get to the church and tell your dad what's happening. Go! Her eyes found the chef's knife as the door rattled behind her. She grabbed in her left hand, taking a pan off the boil with her right. Its contents sent the first assailant to his knees. No screams as he clutched at his face. The pan itself sent the second staggering back into his comrades. Not missing a beat, she ran forward and thrust the knife into the first rope's face. The second recovered himself in time to get it in the chest. She pressed her boot against his stomach as she removed the knife, the body's momentum knocking over two more robes and staggering a third. The killing blows were quick and decisive before she burst back into the main restaurant. She went cold. She had hardly thinned their numbers at all, and those who fell by the table she had thrown had now recovered themselves. The nearest was maybe three strides away, and though she couldn't see any faces beneath their white cowls, she could feel their stares as she circled away from them in a knife-fighting stance. The next couple who approached her were dispatched easily enough, but as they died the others continued to circle. Within moments she would be surrounded. She took a deep breath. She stepped back towards the wall and let them close in tighter. They kept formation now, none leaping out to give her a chance at a kill. Soon enough she was penned in. She took another breath then ran forward. She chose one robe. The kick to the stomach doubled them over. She used their shoulders to boost herself off and jump. Then she was on the other side of them and no longer trapped but they were regrouping fast. She slit the throat of the nearest and dodged back from several lunges. It was a dance now, but how long could she keep up with the steps? She hoped Hannah had run fast. Her hopes were answered a minute or so later when the windows shattered inwards. The bottle smashed on a white-robed head. Flames erupted in the middle of the group. More Molotov cocktails flew in after the first, until every robe was engulfed in fire. They were as flailed and fell as any person on fire would, but they did not cry out or scream. They all died in silence. You want to get the hell away from the hot stuff there, Jen? She ran to the window, easily leaping the shards in the frame to land outside. There was quite a crowd now along West Market Street, people coming out of their homes and stopping in their cars. She ran over to the mop pastor past her standing in the parking lot and threw her arms around him. That was quick. I got a tip off, Keith said. Tip off? Where's Hannah? Her heart started to race as she realised their daughter wasn't with him. I sent her to the church to find you. He nodded down the road. Should we go get her then? She swallowed, his calm easing her nerves. I'll fill you in on the way. She took one last look at the pizzeria, where the flames had moved on from the intruders to the decor, then at the crowd of gawkers. Then she followed Keith back towards the church, and hopefully Hannah. Tarley stirred in her bed at the sound of a door slamming downstairs, followed by shouting and other sounds she didn't recognise. Her nightlight still shone from the corner of the room, but it was darker than she ever remembered. She climbed out of the bed, blinking with tiredness. She shook the thumb of her right hand, rubbing at her pyjamas with her left. Before she could reach the door, it opened and she cried out in shock. The man, a friend of her daddy's, but she didn't know his name, closed the door quickly and put a hand over her mouth. I'm going to keep you safe, he whispered, but you have to stay quiet or they'll hear you, okay? Her eyes widened, her throat tight. She nodded. 
Even though he was kneeling, she had to look up to see his face. He looked scared too. He took his hand off her mouth and put a finger to his lips. Shh. He went to the window and opened it, but before he could do anything else, the stairs creaked. Under the bed, go, he hissed, gesturing wildly. She did as bid and was out of sight when the door burst open. Everyone who came in was wearing white. She clamped two hands over her own mouth and tears streamed down her face. There was a horrible cry, then the man who had been trying to help her fell to the floor. His eyes were blank and something that looked black was running out of his mouth and from underneath him. She screamed. There was a crash as the bed was pushed over. She buried her head in her hands, willing the bad things to go away. Then she felt a sharp pain in her back, followed by numbness. She looked up and saw the face of one of the men in white. Everything went cold, then black. The sun was beginning to rise over Shanghui. Luckily, she was far enough away from the Yansheng Temple and into the forest that it would probably still be a few hours until people came anywhere near. But still, Dayu had to finish off the Jiangxi quickly. The creature stretched out its arms. Thin, rotten things, the flesh hanging off them like the rags of a beggar, and leapt towards her again. She rolled to the left and swung her axe at the creature's legs. It was a clumsy blow. She would have avoided the use of axes altogether, were they not necessary to deal with these hopping corpses, but it was enough to send the corpse crashing to the ground. She hopped to her feet and moved in for the killer blow. Sentinel. The chorus of voices behind her staggered her long enough for the Zhang Shi to recover its senses and grab at her feet. She kicked it in the head, loosing its grip and moving past it, turning to see who had called. In your blood we are cleansed. Dayu had no idea what these things were. Clad all in white, with no face visible, they resembled nothing she had ever thought. The Zhang Shi let out an ear-splitting screech and started scrambling in her direction. Not at her, she realised, but fleeing them. She raised the axe and brought it down to split the skull in two, putting the thing out of its misery. With a smile, she flung the weapon to one side and drew her to die from the sheath at her side. It was a broad blade, roughly three feet long, with a double-handed hilt, and unlike the axe, it was an elegant weapon that was almost an extension of herself. The white-robed horde advanced upon her with daggers drawn. There were many, but there was no formation, no fighting stance, no indication at all that they had any advantage by numbers. Time to test that theory. She broke into a run, charging towards the enemy, and picked a single target to front and centre. A flying kick sent him sprawling, and as she landed, she slashed in a wide arc. There were some clean hits, at least one decapitation, some misses. She kept moving forward. As she moved, she ducked, dodged and jumped. Slashed, stabbed, kicked, punched and cleaved. Finally, she ran into Dio through a cowled face and beyond him there was only more forest. She turned to see a path lined with dead and wounded ran through the middle of the horde. The sun was now up and the robes of those still standing almost shone with brilliance. But those who had fallen were a mass of grey cloth, muddied and bloodied. In that moment of silence, she could hear the blood dripping off her blade into the grass. Kevin sat on the hood of his old dodge, a sawn-off shotgun cradled in one arm, and waited. He flicked open his zippo with his free hand and lit the cigar in his mouth. Let's get this over with you sons of bitches, he said in Spanish. He was on a piece of open grassland at the side of a highway called the Cartera a Messiah. It was far enough away from the town of Messiah that there were no other people nearby and open enough that he had a clear view in all directions. He heard their voices before he saw them. Sentinel, they said as one. In your blood we are cleansed. 
He stood upon the hood as they came into view. His eyes flicked between the front and back of their white-clad procession. The head of the mob was maybe six feet from him when he sparked the match and dropped it to the ground. The oil lit and the flames grew quickly in a wide circle around the multitude, burning green. The entire group stopped moving. There was no other reaction, even as the circle of flames closed. It caught a few of the multitude on the periphery, whose bodies disintegrated as they hit the ground. Roughly ten had been caught outside the circle and moved around it in his direction. Gunshots from within the trees took them all out quickly. Three fell into the fire and were incinerated. The rest just crumpled on the ground. All inside the circle remained still and silent. Too easy, he thought. But then, he had read the signs and prepared, and he suspected that he was the only one. He hadn't been able to reach any of the other sentinels directly, and they were likely to have been caught unaware. Kevin raised his gun in the air, and two more armed men emerged from the trees, heading in his direction. He slid off the hood of the dodge and greeted each of them with a clap on the shoulder. What now, Dad? His son Marcus looked like a younger version of him, from the thick black hair and light brown skin, to the cocky smile as he slung his gun over his shoulder. Now we get some sleep, because there'll be plenty more battles to come. Though first I want to check in and see how many other sentinels survived. And them? David asked. He was older than them both, black and with a heavy grey moustache under his nose. He gestured towards the white road multitude within the circle of green flame, still silence and unmoving. We can't just leave them here. Kevin walked around to the passenger door of the Dodge. Opening the duffel bag on his seat, he pulled out a hand grenade and tossed it to him. No sense in wasting bullets. Hazel's broadsword cut across the torso of two of the robed figures. She arched backwards to dodge a slashing knife from a third. She kicked the blade away from his hand. Upright again, she ran him through, twisting away from more attacks. She saw Joel grow sprawling. He recovered himself and drove his sword into the attacker's gut when they went in for the kill. Her sword was bloody now and getting heavier. The pile of crumpled bodies around her had grown substantially, and at last the crowd seemed visibly thinned. The risk of their numbers was continually diminishing, and whilst they had only daggers to hand, Hazel and Joel had the advantage. Finally, she sliced clean through the throat of a robed figure, and when he fell there was nobody behind him. She turned to see Joel sidestep a last attack from a robed figure. He brought his sword down on the thing's collarbone. When it crumpled, the two of them stood alone amongst scattered corpses. Joel let out a bark of laughter, without humour. That was unreal. He looked over his shoulder, then back at Hazel. What do we do with the bodies? Call the guild. This street is quiet, but not dead. We need to get them out of public view quickly. She knelt, grabbed the hood on the nearest body and pulled it down. The corpse was human and male, but the skin of his face had been stripped off to leave only a mask of raw flesh. She pulled down other hoods. They were male and female, a variety of ethnicities, their skin tinted with grey and all of them with the skin flayed from their faces. Jesus, she said, standing up and doing her best not to look back at the skinless faces. Hazel's phone rang just as she took it out of her pocket. It was her dad. Hello? Hazel, thank God. Are you okay? Her father's voice was shaky. She frowned. Yeah, I'm fine. She looked at Joel and shrugged when he mouthed. What? We got jumped by these guys in white robes, but me and Joel were able to handle them. I was just about to ring the guild for help getting rid of the bodies. There's a lot of them. White robes? She heard some muttering on the other end of the line. But couldn't make out the words. Hazel, this is important. Did you get them all? 
Yeah, Dad, why? What's going on? I believe they were part of the great multitude in white robes. The same ones from Revelation. Revelation? You mean the book of Revelation from the Bible? She saw Joel's eyes widen. Uh, yes. An apocryphal text called The Knowledge of Christopher tells us of how the multitude will be assembled from all the false prophets and the congregations whose path to salvation was through money, hostility and exclusion. They're essentially zombies, raised for a single night and a single task. What? To kill me? No. There was a pause. You weren't the only one. What? The other sentinels were all attacked by the same group. Her dad said. Apart from the sentinel in Israel, who died after the earthquake at Tel Megiddo. Only three of them survived. Will this multitude try again? No. According to this text, if they succeed tonight, they'll find comfort in their damnation. But if they fail, then the voice of their agony will ring eternal through the corridors of Hell's dungeons. Nice. Yeah. But they're not the worst of our worries. Hazel, you and Joel come home now. I'll contact Jack to deal with the bodies. Okay. See you soon. When she hung up, she looked at Joel, who was fit to burst with anticipation. Come on. We're just leaving the bodies here? He asked. Well, the risk of them being found isn't as bad as that of us being found with them. Fair enough. He managed to wait until they were out of sight of the massive corpses before he turned to her and said, So? She told him everything that she knew from what her dad had told her. As she expected, his anticipation for the story soon vanished. Chapter 14 Hardly thinking about it at all, Miles balled his hand into a fist and threw a punch. It hit the bag hard enough to make an audible smack that echoed around the mostly empty gym and made it swing far enough that he had to put his hands out to stop it from catching him in the face. Hmm, Anil said, her face giving nothing away. Now this time, try. Pull back and put all of your weight into your swing. Miles stared at her for a moment. He still heard that sound like a tuning fork when he saw her. Smelled fresh flowers in her presence, saw the glow around her. What did it mean? He could ask her, of course, but that was too easy. Especially if she was some other type of supernatural thing they hadn't yet encountered. Perhaps a dangerous one. He had to tread carefully. Well? Anil prompted. Alright. He pulled back and swung as hard as he could, putting all of his weight into it. His fist hit the leather and it tore, sand spilling out over his hand and onto the floor. As his fist plunged into the bag, the chain holding it up tore out of the ceiling and the whole thing crashed to the floor. Not bad, Anil said. She looked and sounded as unimpressed, though whether it was put on, Miles couldn't tell. That's it? Not bad? She shrugged. Now hit me. When his eyes widened, she said, Well, perhaps I should say, try. He looked over her shoulder at Puth, who so far had remained silent. He still said nothing now, though there was a hint of a smirk on his face. Miles turned to Lydia, leaning against the wall in the far corner of the gym. She only shrugged. His eyes returned to an aisle. She raised her eyebrows and held his gaze for several long seconds. Miles threw a punch. Or rather, he lifted his arm and propelled it towards an aisle. Not particularly hard or fast. Open palm. She didn't even move. Just swatted his arm aside. Then she slapped him across the face, making his temple sting for several moments. Try again, she said. He scowled at her. The next punch came harder and faster, though he aimed for her arm rather than her head. This time, she grabbed his arm and spun him around, sending him skidding on the balls of his feet back across the room. 
She made a double-handed, come on, gesture. Gritting his teeth, Miles stepped forward. He clenched his fist and threw a punch, not particularly hard, but fast, and aimed at her head. As Anil raised an arm to block, he opened his fist to grab her and swung his other fist at her side. It never connected. He was aware of her arm leaving his grip and his other fist striking only empty space. She was closer to him. The flat of her palm winded him and doubled him over. Then he was off the ground and soaring over her back. He flew several feet before collapsing and rolling across the ground. He tried to cry out, but it came out as coughing and hacking. My! Lydia ran to his side. Her hands softly running along his back didn't reduce the blunt throbbing along his side or the tight pressing at his chest, but it made his skin prickle and he felt marginally better just for a touch. That was a bit excessive, wasn't it? You've been in fights before? And I asked. Miles forced himself to a standing position, though he really wanted to lie down and curl up, ideally with Lydia in his arms. Some, he said with a shrug. All the fights he had been in as an adult were more accurately described as shouting matches. The last time he'd been in a real fist fight, he'd been 13. He and the other lads ended up on the floor, their friends around him screaming encouragement and bloody murder. He'd won, because when he felt his hair being pulled, he pulled the lad's mouth open with his thumb and split his lip with a punch. Well, the good news is that your sheer strength will do for a pub brawl, or something like that. Against anyone with some skill, you're going to end up on the floor a lot. A pause. Several long seconds. Noir de Eindorn would kill you without breaking a sweat. Miles made to object, but stopped himself. There was no smirk on Anil's face now, no mischief or arrogance. She meant what she was saying, and she was genuinely afraid that it would come true. He could smell it as well as see it on her face. Something cold crept up his back, making him tense noticeably enough for Lydia to reach out and squeeze his arm. Teach me then, he said, because I'm sure neither of us wants to see that. The Book of Revelation? Lydia said with a shake of her head. I mean... The others nodded or grunted their agreement. They were sat in a relatively small lecture theatre on a cluster of chairs at the back. Other people were slowly filtering into the room, taking seats either on their own or in other small groups. A murmur of light conversation filled the air. Yeah, tell me about it, Jess said. Although I'm pretty sure the great multitude in white robes were the righteous dead and only said to go to heaven, and not an army of murderous zombies. Kit gave her a curious look. I know it's hard to believe, but our Jess went through a devout Catholic phase back when we were... Lydia hesitated. What, 16? 15. It didn't last long beyond me discovering how much I liked Dick. The laughing drew looks from several others. Shortly, Hazel arrived and took a seat on the front row, though not before shooting a suspicious look in Mars's direction. Lydia put her hand on Mars's leg and straightened up, glaring back at her. Come relax. Miles said. No, she knows your story. She shouldn't still be giving you looks like you're some kind of monster. She can sense that I'm a vampire. I stand out every time she looks at me. His eyes drifted momentarily to a Nile at the front of the room with Booth. It's got to be disconcerting. Even so. Jack was the last to enter the room. He called a Nile, Booth, Joe and Hazel together in a huddle. It lasted about half a minute before Jack and Anil stayed standing and the others took seats. Slowly, conversation faded into silence and then everybody was staring at them, waiting for them to begin. Jack cleared his throat. Okay, everyone, he said. Thanks for coming in at short notice. I know it's unusual to call everyone in at once, especially those on assignments, but we're in unusual circumstances. You should have all seen the most recent bulletin by now. 
They have bulletins. Kate whispered in Jess's ear. Do you reckon they have coffee mornings as well? Shh, she said, smacking his hand, but then having to put her hand to her mouth to keep from laughing. Anyway, the reason we're all here is because from tonight we're on a class one alert. A murmur arose. He put his hands in the air to quieten everyone. Yes, yes, I know, it's unprecedented, but that's why we all need to be here. We already know that the earthquake had tell Megado, setting the Wadawine door loose, and although we still don't have any idea of his whereabouts, the fiasco with the werewolves should be enough to tell us that his re-emergence alone is enough to make the vamps a lot more confident than they were previously. But it turns out there's more to the story. He looked at Anil and she stepped forward. She took a breath before beginning. Most of you will know that the Sentinels were attacked not too long ago by this multitude in white robes. Members of various religious sects who considered themselves gods-elect, slaughtered and resurrected to serve as an army of killers. Thankfully, not all of them succeeded. But that hardly matters. The act of creating the multitude was enough. It broke one of the seals which bound the armistice between heaven and hell. That armistice has stood for 6,000 years, as the reason human civilization has been free to develop as it has, and it can only be shattered by breaking all seven seals. Noirdwyndon's release was the fifth, and the multitude was the sixth. Chattering and murmurs rippled across the room. Somebody called out, What's the seventh, then? Jack raised his hands, appealing for silence. When he finally got it, he said, We don't know. We've gone over every single possible reference and source for information, but there's no clue as to how the seventh seal might break. The only thing we know is that it'll happen here, in Liverpool. When Lydia stepped outside the room, she found that her chest was too tight. Her heart hammered, and the pulse echoed in her temples. Tremors ran up her legs, and her breathing was uneven. She stopped and leaned against the wall, resting her head against it. Miles came to her side and put his hand on the back of her neck. With thumb and two forefingers, he rubbed the nape of her neck. She closed her eyes and tilted her head to one side with a moan. His touch was firm. It sent a rush of warmth down her body, and she could feel the tension in her chest fade. He shifted his hands over to her left shoulder and moved his other over to the right to carry on kneading her flesh. How's that feel? He asked. He kissed her neck. Mmm. She turned around to face Miles, taking her hands in his. Is this real? Are we really talking about the end of the world? He frowned. He would ask what she was talking about now, surely. Tell her that she was hearing things was crazy, something. We'll stop it. She grimaced. He said it as comfort, but that meant it was real. Of course it was. She'd seen his body when he died. Now he was a vampire, and the world was coming to an end. No room to pretend otherwise. She took several deep breaths. We better add. They kissed. She caressed Miles' cheek and smiled at him. He smiled back, and they stood there for several moments, just holding hands and looking into one another's eyes. Everything else melted away. There was nothing to worry about. Of course they would stop the end of the world. Why wouldn't they? That was Miles' destiny. Destiny. That was a funny word. Not one that people use much nowadays. At least not in the proper sense. She had once known a girl who had claimed that it was destiny, how she had met the father of her child. But then he went and got three other women pregnant in the space of a couple of months. Genuine destiny was something else. And Miles apparently had one. Doesn't it scare you? She asked him. What, the end of the world? The fact that it's on you to stop it, it scared me. No, that wasn't quite true. It does scare me. I'm scared for you. 
She felt tears welling in her eyes and hastily wiped them away. I'm just scared. Miles pulled her into his arms and planted a kiss on her forehead. I'll be fine, he said. We'll all be fine, I promise. But still, she felt trembly, even as he held her there, for how long she didn't know. She felt all the tension seep back into her body. She found herself thinking of his body, cold and lifeless on that metal table. Next time there would be no return, no second chance. He shouldn't have even got it before. He should still be dead now, buried or waiting for it. She pushed the thought aside. He wasn't, that was all that mattered, and he couldn't end up back on the table. He couldn't. He made the sound and she realised that she had been squeezing him tighter than she had thought. Sorry, she said, blushing. He shrugged, a smile on his face. I'd rather have you hold on to me too tight than not at all. She felt the heat in her cheeks intensify and a comforting warmth in her stomach. Which is why we're going to stop this end of the world, bollocks. Alright? She nodded, and in that moment, she believed him. Gaz lifted his mouth from the victim's neck. He ran his tongue around his mouth to get the splatters of blood. The flesh of the open wound, pink and red and torn, quivered in front of him. Can you feel that? He said. His pupil was a young black girl of maybe 18 named Tass, herself turned only a few days ago. She nodded. Like I said, there's no great art to it, but you have to pay attention as their pulse weakens or you go too far. Then, he forced his victim onto their knees without protest. He pierced a vein and let them drink. He put his teeth to his wrist, and then his wrist to the victim's mouth. They have to get enough that they'll regenerate, but not enough so that you're left weak. Generally, as soon as you get a head rush, that's your cue to stop. When he reached that point, he pulled his wrist away and shoved the victim to the ground. Should we find new ones to practice on, and then head home once they're both up? Several streets over, there was the sound of glass shattering, then shouting. Gaz gestured for Tass to stay where she was and walked out of the alley. The street was dark and quiet, until somebody came sprinting out of another street. A petrol bomb narrowly missed him and exploded on the ground. We gotta go, now! The other vampire, another newbie called Lee, shouted. Behind him, a crowd appeared, all with scarves covering their faces and hoods up. Another petrol bomb landed a lot closer to Lee. Gaz looked down the alley. Oi, come on! Tass reached the road as Lee reached them, grabbing their sleeves and dragging them into a run. The mob of youths ran after them, down the middle of the road. They were armed with bats, crowbars and metal poles. A siren roared nearby. A police car skidded onto the road and screamed past the vampires. The pursuers turned and started running. Another car appeared at the opposite end of the road, skidding to a stop to block their escape. They scattered in all directions. Gaz dragged Lee and Tass into another alley as the cops left their cars and chased the youths on foot. This area is too dangerous to stick to for recruitment, Lee said. Now it's perfect, Gaz said. If we were targeting the posh end of Chillwall it'd be news and the guild would be alerted to what we're up to. Because it's hockey, nobody gives a shit. Except for that mob of kids. They're organised, Tass concurred. They've, we've been dealing with vampires for weeks now. We did notice, but it's good practice, Gaz said. Besides, the police are practically on our side as well. Pursuit moved further away from them, and the street went quiet again. After a while, they spotted someone walking up the street in their direction. A student, by appearances. Alone. Okay, your turn, Gaz told Tass. 
five lampposts in a row along Lodge Lane were out. Meaning that Holly couldn't see anything beyond five feet in front of her. Beyond that, everything was a blare of dark colours on black. She walked up to the crossing, even though there wasn't a car in sight. She crossed over and walked alongside the railings to the local pharmacy. Before she got there, something hit her back. The impact knocked the wind out of her, driving her into and over the railings. She landed on her chest, legs positioned awkwardly, a weight on her back pinning her down. She felt something brush against the skin of her neck, followed by a low growl right next to her ear. She froze, not daring to breathe. Something sharp touched her neck. She cried out as it penetrated the skin and drew blood. Oi! The shout came from somewhere to her left. The thing on top of her shook as something impacted it from the left. Something else hit it from behind and the weight was off her. She rolled over onto her back and saw what must have been her attacker trying to lift himself to a standing position. Then a group, six or seven of them, all clad in black and wearing backpacks with a leather sheet hanging off the side, piled into him and drove him to the ground. There was a flurry of fists and feet. She pushed up to a sitting position. A hand touched her arm and she screamed. But when she looked up, it was another of the black clad group and she put her hand on her chest, trying to slow her breathing. Behind the hood and mask, from the eyes, she thought it might have been a woman. She helped Holly to her feet and then pulled her away from the fight. What was that? The woman dragged her out of the fenced off area, back onto the pavement. Ollie thought she saw a flash of steel out the corner of her eye. Vampire, the masked woman said. What are you doing out alone, love? Alone? Why shouldn't I be? They stopped a few feet from the railings. Holly looked back and saw the fight was over, and the black masks were heading in their direction. As they moved, she caught sight of her attacker lying on the ground. The face wasn't human. Grey, with sunken cheeks, a ridged brow and dagger teeth. The head was separate from the body blood pooling around the severed neck. She gasped. That's why you shouldn't be. That's a vampire? Who are you? Let's get you out of here before we get into all that, yeah? More vampires? Worse. Coppers? Sirens sounded close by. The group started jogging in the opposite direction. The masked woman took Holly's hand and dragged her with them. She stumbled, but quickly recovered herself and then kept pace with them easily enough. They crossed the road the way she had come and then turned off onto another road which they followed around to Tiber Park, moving into the trees before stopping. There, her rescuers all pulled off their backpacks and from them exchanged their black hoodies for more colourful tops and ditched their masks before heading back to the road and moving on. I'm Taylor. She was dark-skinned, almost six feet tall, with a face and a figure which would have brought to mind a model had Holly not just seen her decapitate a monster. Her hair was tied back in a severe ponytail. You? Holly? Why'd you wear masks? Like I said, the police. As soon as we started taking on the vamps, they decided that we were the problem. But why? Taylor shrugged. They're wankers professionally. Always found reasons to harass us. And I doubt they see self-defense against the undead as sufficient excuse for assembling well black. Do they know about the vampires? The young man at the front held his hand up and the whole group stopped to the street corner, taking a few steps back as several police cars raced past. Once they disappeared, the group carried on away from the cars. Probably. Wouldn't surprise me. Holly shook her head. I can't believe there are vampires. I couldn't at first, but then... 
Holly thought she could see tears in Taylor's eyes, but the other woman quickly blinked them away. Well, we've all seen the proof for ourselves. Nobody else is doing anything about them, though, so it's up to us. Hey, what's that? Another young woman said, pointing. They all looked up. The smoke stood out even in the night sky, illuminated underneath by what could only be the flames feeding it. It wasn't far away, and it was strong. Taylor and the rest of the group exchanged looks. Then, without saying a word, they were running towards the fire. Holly found herself running along with them, heart racing. She shouldn't have. She had only come out to get cigarettes and something for a headache. Instead, finding herself thrust into the middle of a bout of collective insanity. It had to be. None of this was real. Vampires didn't exist. Yet she kept running towards the fire when she should have been moving away from it. There was already a crowd there when they arrived. No emergency services as of yet, despite the apparent close proximity of the police. Just lots of local people staring. Many with their phones out to take pictures. The building had been a local youth centre or something along those lines. Or had been shut for at least a decade since the funding for it had dried up. The only people who went inside it were the homeless looking for a bit of shelter when it was cold. Now it was burning. But that wasn't why people were staring. Taylor led the way as the group pushed through to the front of the crowds. As she followed, Holly felt her throat grow tighter and the tumult in her stomach increasing. When she finally saw the hastily erected scaffold in front of the building, she went cold and electric shocks pricked at the back of her neck and along her arms. She felt her eyes drawn to it, despite her best efforts. The gaze traced down from the crossbar to the chains hanging from it, creaking as they swayed ever so slightly back and forth, and at last the dark shapes at the end of the chains, the bodies. She felt faint, her vision bleeding to grey at the periphery, but she swallowed and forced herself to stay standing. Next to her, a hand shot out and there was an audible click as their phone took a photograph. As Holly stared, the sick and dizzy feeling faded, but as it did, questions arose. What nightmare had she stepped into when leaving the house tonight? The vampire, if that's what it really was, was one thing. But these bodies, murdered and left hanging in the open for all to see. None of them were adults, the oldest being teenagers, but a couple of them were very clearly children. That was bad enough. But at even the most cursory glance, it was apparent they weren't human. A door slammed. A young, purple-skinned girl called Becky gasped and sat up in her sleeping bag. It was dark, but there was just enough light that she could make out basic shapes, grey on black. In the far corner of the room, by the door to Ken Ulm's office, she could see the outline of two men. She could hear their angry whispers, clearly an argument even though she couldn't make out the words. They were in a warehouse. He had long been stripped of whatever equipment and furniture had once filled the place. A small section of the factory floor was divided off by lines painted on the floor as a lobby area for visitors, while the rest was covered with blankets, sleeping bags, and sometimes even tents. Around Becky, their occupants continued to sleep, or at least pretend to. She frowned and slid out of her sleeping bag, crawling towards the edge of the sleeping area. Something grabbed her tail, and she bit her bottom lip to suppress a yelp. She looked back to see that it was Peter, her brother, and he had a finger over his mouth. Becky frowned, but crawled back to her sleeping bag. As she wriggled back inside, her foot touched something soft. She used both legs to move it up to where she could grasp it with her hands to see that it was Wish, her care bear. She squeezed it tight and turned away from Peter. Footsteps echoed around the room. She wriggled and craned her head so that she could look without sitting up. One of the men was walking over to the sleeping area. 
her eyes adjusted to the light enough that she could see it was the lizard man who had arrived the day before. He wore a grey, two-tone pinstripe suit, a mauve shirt and a black tie. A row of spines jutted out, running up each arm from the wrist to the shoulder, and from the small of his back up his spine and over his head to his brow. His body was covered in copper-brown scales. His footsteps stopped at the edge of the sleeping area, head moving as he cast his eyes across it. Becky could feel the collective intake of breath, waiting for him to go and leave them in peace. She squeezed Wish harder. Tremors ran up her legs and arms. More footsteps sounded, and the other man appeared at his side. It was Kenelm, still in the suit he had been wearing during the day, now decidedly more rumpled. The face on the back of his head bore an expression of worry, whereas his front face was gritting his teeth. This is a sanctuary, Kenelm hissed. We're all kin here, you can't do this. Kin? The the lizard man's voice boomed, shocking most of the factory floor awake and making Becky squeeze wish tighter still. You give refuge to half-breeds. Whose kin do you claim to be? Everybody was definitely awake now. Some of them simply stared, huddling close to those around them and unsure of what to do. Others were on their feet, some edging away from the confrontation, but not all. Peter put his arms around Becky and pulled her with him. What? Kenan shouted back. You think you can just come in here spouting that bollocks? He has a point, Ken. Somebody else said. This was quickly met by another voice hissing. Don't get involved. Why not? Maybe this bloke's right. We're scraping by clinging onto the coattails of humanity, living off their scraps, putting ourselves at their mercy, meeting with them. A clamour erupted then, some objecting to what had been said, others defending it. Becky couldn't make out individual voices because they were too far away. They reached the canteen. Peter dragged her behind the counter and threw the door in the back. It was too dark to see anything in here until Peter produced a small torch. The room was tiny, a few shelves lined with supplies for the canteen, but there was a vent in the corner of the room. Peter knelt and pulled it open, beckoning her to crawl inside. She shook her head and raised Wish in front of her face. Enough! The roar from the other side of the room was loud, even behind the closed door. Peter beckoned again, and this time she nodded and scrambled into the vent. She couldn't see anything, only hear the low clanging as she moved and feel how sore lying like this made her elbows and knees. Tears ran down her face. Keep going forward, I'm right behind you, Peter said. She pushed Wish out ahead of her, imagining that he was leading the way, ready to protect her from the nasty lizard man. She could hear him talking, his voice carrying through the vent, getting louder as she turned the first corner and moved forward. I'll make this simple. A war is coming. One that will change this world forever. And you want to make sure you are on the right side. None of you are warriors, but you can play your part and earn a place in the new world rather than simply waiting to be expunged from it. There was a light further down, and the voice was coming from there. She crawled towards it, her knees and elbows throbbing. Our friend here was quite right. You do cling to the coattails of humanity. Denying the world you are born of to live in the rotten scrapings at the bottom of theirs. But now you are faced with a choice. There are those among you whose veins are infected with human blood. They are a curse and a virus, condemning you and making you weak. Becky reached the first vent along the wall. The lizard man's voice was coming through with the light. She stopped and peered out. 
He wasn't looking at her, but was pacing back and forth in front of the other residents. Kenelm was lying on the floor, his eyes open but blank. She squeezed her eyes shut and crawled past the vent, tears streaming from her eyes. So this is the choice you face. Remove the half-breeds from your midst, or swing with them. Thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this and you want more, then you you can subscribe to my YouTube channel, AK Black and Red, or search for From the Hill of Megado on your favourite podcast service. Next week, we'll be going into chapters 15 through 17 as our heroes seek answers to what comes next. See you then.